0: Hello, this is the Pod Goblin's Hat, a podcast about the Moomins.
1: This is episode 6, which is about the dangers of losing your crowning glory, treasures from the beach and gifts from wizards.
0: I'm Nina, a person who sits in judgement. And I'm Dave,
1: a person who eats pancakes and so can't be dangerous.
0: And we're reading all the way through Tuve Jansson's Moomins books together. It's the first time for me.
1: Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomins would be featured pretty regularly.
0: We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tuve Jansson's Moomin stories.
1: Today we're reading the second half of the badly named Finn family Moomin troll.
0: The second half of this book is a mixed bag when we last recorded i hadn't read past this point and we left it on a cliffhanger there was a storm everybody was in a tent that they've made out of a boat and some sails and the Hemulen had stolen a barometer from the Hattie Farmers.
1: and snufkin saw the hobgoblin riding on his panther across the sky but decided not to tell anyone
0: So the next thing that happens is there are Hattie Fatners in the tent. And they've got sort of supercharged by the lightning such that they're glowing like ghosts.
1: They're kind of like electric eels as well, I feel. They're a
0: bit staticky, which means that if they touch you, it stings. And they're sort of setting fire to stuff. They're only looking for one thing. They're looking for the barometer. They find it, they take it away. Everybody panics, The tent falls over and somewhere... In the melee, the snork Maiden's fringe is burned off.
1: Like the artefacts in the British Museum, the barometer needs to be returned.
0: <laughs> and it is returned. So that is a good ending for the Hattie Fatners. Off they go. The next morning, the island's all beautiful and washed clean. The sun is rising. Everybody's sitting huddled on the beach together in blankets. It's really nice.
1: Life is not peaceful, said Snufkin contentedly.
0: Snufkin was quite into all that's just happened i think including their house falling down
1: this is right i think Snupkin is the only one who <laughs> is like chill about the whole of the experiences on the lonely island
0: at this point moomin troll realizes that the Snork maiden's lovely fringe is burned to a frizzle and so he tries to make that easier for her by suddenly claiming he doesn't like hair on girls anyway
1: classic mistake You see that your girlfriend's hair is burnt off and you think, rather than tell her, I'll start making comments about how rubbish hair is.
0: (laughs) No, rather than tell her, I'm going to just start proclaiming how I think women should look. Yeah. (laughs) I I can see where he's coming from, but it's quite... A bad tactic. It doesn't go very well. And as soon as the snork maiden realizes what's happened, she's very, very upset. And everybody tries their own ways of making her feel better. So, Moomin Papa says that we'll rub oil into your head so it grows back, and Moomin Mama says, and it'll come back in curly, and that'll be so cute. Eventually, she calms down enough, but like she's clearly not happy. The children decide to go for a bathe. The grown-ups decide to have some coffee and some breakfast. It turns out that the butter jar that Moomin Mama had hidden in the sand from the sun has been washed away by the storm. But Moomin Papa says, yeah, the storm took the butter, but it's given us loads of stuff.
1: Yeah, Moomin Papa is really, really into what the sea washes up. Yeah. It's a very big passion of his it happened before this in the first half he was excited about the boat being washed up but then in this part he's almost evangelical about it
0: yes so everybody goes and finds some stuff and sadly it
1: says everyone sets out on his own at this point even though two of them are hers
0: yeah snork finds somewhere where the lightning has struck and it's opened up a seam of gold and he starts digging out the gold with his pocket knife. So he's now a gold digger, he's super happy about that. The Snork Maiden is sort of having a bit of an existential moment by herself like, oh, everybody else does impressive things, and I never do anything impressive, and wouldn't it be great if I could find something really amazing and then I would give it to Moomin Troll, and then that would be really something. She's having these thoughts. And then she finds a figurehead from a boat. It's a beautiful, beautiful woman carved out of wood and painted. She's got blue hair. She's got beautiful eyes. She's got painted on jewels. She's got her hands folded over her chest. And weirdly, she's got no back. That's because later it's explained to us that she goes on the front of a ship.
1: Because sailors like the ladies, am I right?
0: Says Mumin Papa.
1: Yeah, they aren't the only ones, are they, Tuve? <laughs>
0: So, Snorkmaiden sort of uses the figurehead as a boat to paddle her way back to the beach and everybody else. Everybody is completely wowed by the figurehead, or as we start to call her, the wooden queen. And Snorkmaiden decides to give the wooden queen to Moomin Troll. Moomin Troll loves her, but then Snorkmaiden gets jealous that Moomin Troll loves this wooden effigy of a woman as carved in the image of like the male gaze, I guess. Yeah. It's quite uncomfortable.
1: I mean, I can relate to the illogicality of jealousy and desirability feelings.
0: Everybody heads back into the boat. They bring the wooden queen back with them. And in the boat, Troll's just standing there with his hand in the wooden lady's hair. And it just strikes the snork maiden. And she's like, I thought you didn't like hair on girls anyway. And she looks so stupid. And he's like, what? And she's like, I hate everything. Eventually, he follows her and goes, you're totally right. Hair on girls look stupid and the wooden queen looks stupid. So that's the end of that adventure. We have a time jump to July and now it's too hot and everyone's bickering because it's too hot. And the Hobgoblin's hat has somehow been reinstated into the family home. We're not told how. I
1: think it's kind of implied it's because they got raspberry juice out of it when they were at the beach.
0: Maybe. And
1: so the fact that it's got a practical purpose maybe is part of it.
0: But still, it doesn't make sense that Moomintroll and Snufkin would have told the grown-ups what they'd done. It
1: does not make sense. It is not the only thing that will not make sense in this second half of the book.
0: The hat is in the book again. and. The kids are all squabbling and Moomin Mama's really over it. And she's like, it'll be cooler in the cave. Why don't you guys decamp to the cave for a bit? And they're like, what? We can stay the night in the cave? And she's like, yeah, you can stay the night in the cave and don't come back until you're done bickering. And so they go and obviously they've had an amazing picnic packed for them by Moomin Mama. So they've got loads of provisions. Everyone digs themselves a little divot in the sand in the cave to sleep in. It's super cozy. It's also getting kind of creepy. And so Snufkin decides, a month after the adventures (laughs) at the island, now is the time to tell my story about the Hobgoblin. It's a great story, though. The Hobgoblin lives in a scary castle, and the bottom of it's all clouds, and it's super tall, and he doesn't need windows and doors because he flies in on his flying panther when he's coming in and out. And he wears a tall top hat, and he's got a cape, and his eyes shine like rubies. And the panther's eyes shine like rubies because the only thing in the whole world that the hobgoblin cares about is rubies. And he collects them all up in his castle. Sniff's like, rubies? What rubies? (laughs) And and Hemian's like, collections? What collection? So everybody is identifying with the story. And the Hemian's also doing this very interesting consensual thing where he's giving snufkin ongoing data about how scary this story is for him so that snufkin can stop before it gets too scary he's like i'm a bit spooked you can keep going let's see how it goes i think the
1: hemulin's behavior here is one of the things i would bring up as like evidence of how the hemulin is one of the children
0: yeah well and he's been sent to the cave
1: yeah indeed (laughs) is it the existence in the cave
0: with the other bickering children (laughs) there's a great whole page picture of the Hobgoblin and his castle at this point which I'm going to describe because I think it's one of the best pictures in the book. So it's all dark you've got the silhouette of a craggy looking castle against some like ominous clouds and then you've got the hobgoblin riding down on his panther, the panther's eyes are really big, panther's teeth are really big. The hobgoblin looks like he's wearing like a Guy Fawkes anonymous mask, <laughs> which I suppose doesn't have that meaning at this point in history, but that is exactly what it looks like. It's got a pale face, big eyes, moustache, pointy little beard, top hat.
1: It's a pointy long beard, actually.
0: Yes, it is. <laughs> and the flowing cape. He's got his white gloves on, so that's a bit magician y. And the, t- the top
1: hat he's wearing is not as tall as the Hobgoblin's hat that they have a hold of. No. But it's possibly a different hat, but we'll get to that later.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Snufkin goes on to say that for the last 300 years, the hobgoblin has been looking for the king's ruby, which is the biggest ruby in the world, which is the size of his panther's head. And he can't find it. He's looked on every planet. He's looking in the craters of the moon right now. Snork, ever the sceptic, goes, is all this true? Snufkin goes, think what you like, and has a banana. And then he says, but you know what the magpie thinks? The magpie thinks the hobgoblin's hat is a tall black hat and a hat he lost a few months ago. Ooh. And then Moomin Troll's like, we found a hat like that! Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God.
1: So we're now in a situation where there's a celestial or space-existing existential threat that is potentially hurtling towards Moomin Valley again.
0: (laughs) That's the end of story time. Everybody lies down to go to sleep. So now we're at a point in the story where most of the main characters know that the hat is a hobgoblin's hat. And so now they have reason to fear a little bit. Everybody goes to sleep. Hemulin wakes up really wet because the rain, which has finally started, <laughs> has come in through the crack in the ceiling of the cave and rained specifically on him and only him.
1: <laughs> Very Very <laughs> relatable.
0: So he goes over to the snork and is like, I'm going to sleep in your hole because it's dry and my hole's wet. And the snork is not very sympathetic. And so the hemulin, in a very unhemulinist way, (laughs) digs a trench from his hole to the snork's hole so that the water can run from his hole to the snork's hole. And the snork is almost impressed. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, that wasn't very like you.
1: Well, it is impressive.
0: And the hemulin's like, I surprised myself. Yeah. This is the day of their great fishing expedition, which is very ill-fated. It's rainy. Two of our characters are already wet and uncomfortable. Snork is doing his masculinity thing of bossing everyone around, and I'm the one who knows about the boat, and I'm the one who knows about the fishing nets and all this stuff. So everybody gets in the boat, even though it seems like most people are not that keen. And they bait all the hooks. They let the line down. Nothing happens for ages and ages and ages. Everyone's really bored. The snork is feeling everyone's boredom and getting really self-conscious. The snork is snipping everybody else. And he's especially snipping at the snork maiden because she's a girl and she wouldn't understand fishing.
1: More representation of sexism.
0: Yeah, there's plenty of that in this book. Then something happens to the fishing line and they pull up and like the first few baits have all been taken. But then it just sort of snaps. The line is broken which the snork interprets as something really big and clever, at the bait and then broke off our line. And how will we ever catch it now? Because my line's broken and blah, blah, blah. And then the snork maiden has the best idea. She thinks we can use this other bit of rope that we've got, the painter, and then we can make our own bait. With your penknife, with all the bits sticking out, and then we can put a bit of pancake on as bait and try that. And that works.
1: There's a whale, there's a whale, there's a whale fish, he cried. And the whale was in full view. There's a whale, there's a whale, there's the whale fish's bow. And the whale was in full
0: view. They managed to hook an enormous fish called the Mameluke. And they do a version of the Nantucket sleigh ride getting dragged along by the massive whale on the end of the line, out toward the horizon and then back toward the shore. And the Mameluke is really clever and trying to trick them, but they're not fooled. And eventually the big fish gets too tired and dies and floats up to the surface, belly up. And they're like, can we go home now?
1: There's a whale, there's a whale, there's a whale, fishy cried. And the whale was in full view. There's a whale, there's a whale. Pretty harsh though for the Mameluke Because later in the book Somebody will say uh, That somebody who eats pancakes and jam Can't be so awfully dangerous
0: I don't think anyone was saying That it was dangerous Just that they wanted to eat it
1: It seems harsh to like Just kill a fish That's not doing anything to you But I guess we do that all the time In order to eat
0: yeah, but this is much more about trophy hunting, I think, than actually subsistence and eating. Everybody seems really relieved by the idea that maybe we're allowed to go home now, especially Sniff. They haul the fish in, they put it on some boards, they carry it back through the woods, they keep like getting tangled in the woods. Fish is really heavy, they keep having to have breaks, it's still raining. Meanwhile in the house, Moomin Mama is having a great time. There are no children underfoot. She can do a bit of tidying up. She can have a bit of a nap. It started to rain and she loves napping to the sound of rain. All is well. She finds a poisonous pink perennial that the haemulon has forgotten to put in his flower press and absentmindedly tidies it into the hobgoblin's hat.
1: We can all relate to being on autopilot. put
0: something down somewhere. You don't think about it. Yeah. She goes off for a nap. Moomin Papa is in his study writing his memoir in what is the most relatable and tragic description of an artist. (laughs) He's thinking, I was so misunderstood as a child and it's just carried on. (laughs) I'm misunderstood now, but everyone will read my memoir and they'll be sorry. And I know this feeling because I have written these stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also know this creative (laughs) drive that comes from...
0: Wanting revenge for your childhood.
1: (laughs) Yeah, wanting to (laughs) have revenge on those that tormented you.
0: But obviously the hobgoblin's hat is going to hobgoblin's hat and the poisonous pink (laughs) perennial does not stay a poisonous pink perennial. It grows into a sleeping beauty style massive plant, it takes over yeah. the whole house, such that Moomin Papa is barricaded into his room. He can't get out. For a while, Moomin Mama doesn't notice. The house gets entirely taken over by this plant. Eventually, Moomin Papa calls for help. She goes to help him. She breaks the glass in his door, heroically rescues him, and then everyone's all right. The children get home, and instead of a house, there's this like green, planty mound, and they can't get in the door.
1: And the moment when Moomin Mama saves Moomin Papa is the first incident in this book of her affinity with axes. But
0: not the last.
1: <laughs> not the last.
0: <laughs> the children realise that. You can still get into the potato cellar and from the potato cellar there's stairs up into the main house but only the little children can fit through that hole which means the hemulan in his soaked dress has to stay outside and guard the mameluke the children manage to get in and they just have a whole day of playing with the plants they're playing tarzan there's a lot of rescuing jane happening The philosopher slash muskrat is very grumpy about all this, but Moomin Mama and Moomin Papa, now that they've been reunited, seem kind of fine with it. Nobody thinks of the Hermulin, who is still out in the rain by himself with the big fish. And then at sort of nightfall, it seems that the magic of the hobgoblin's hat begins to fade. The plant, which has been vigorous and making flowers and fruit and like twisting and moving, dries out like a twig. The Hermulin snaps a bit off. And he's like, I know, I'll make a fire to dry my dress. So he snaps a bunch of bits off, makes a huge bonfire, dries his dress, and then pulls the end of the Mameluke's tail into the flame, and roasts the fish, and has some dinner.
1: Yeah, not the whole fish, just the tail, because the Hamulin only needs the tail.
0: He's eaten one-seventh of it by the time the rest of them come out of the house. And so they just like snap all the bits of plant and like, have a huge, huge bonfire and a big, big feast. And then we have another flash-forward in time... It's getting to be sort of like mid-August and two small and frightened creatures holding hands and carrying a suitcase arrive in Moomin Valley and think they can fell smooth. They're like, oh, some really big people must live in this house. And Moomin Mama sticks her head out of the window and goes, coffee, everyone, coffee. And they're like, whoa, what was that? And they go and hide in the potato cellar. And they're so small that they manage to hide among the potatoes so that only their eyes are visible. Moomin Mama's like, huh. New guests, I guess. Sniff, could you go downstairs and offer them some milk?
1: They're assumed to be mice.
0: also foreigners.
1: I think it's quite nice, the idea of, like, welcoming mice to your home. It's very different from the way we normally approach mice. And also, I guess, the way people approach foreigners. So it's nice in two ways.
0: Sniff goes down with the milk. But he can't make himself understood, and he feels very insulted. And to be fair, he also insults the two little creatures who are called Thingummy and Bob. He says, oh, you silly old mice, and they say it back to him. And he gets offended and comes back upstairs. And he's telling Moomin Mama and the Hemulin about it. And the Hemulin, with his analytical brain, works out how Thingummy and Bob's language works which is, you know, just spoonerisms, basically. It's really interesting
1: in terms of the language because Me and Bob, they're non-binary creatures. They don't have a gender, but they're also kind of a queer relationship. They're inserts for Tuve and, and a... And
0: one of our girlfriends.
1: Their language, it's a secret kind of language, a kind of queer language, which would make you think of Polari, I guess, is kind of yeah. one of the most obvious queer languages. But it functions more like Pig Latin, which is another yeah. secret language that people use. And so you can work it out if you know English, but also it confuses you if you know English. And interestingly, Moomin Mama's approach to the language barrier, the reason she finds it annoying is because you need to know what birthday puddings people want and how many pillows they like. So <laughs> that is on the level that I think we can all find language barriers frustrating because we want to do nice things and have good interactions between different human beings. Th- the way that xenophobia is both represented and then undercut, those are the good politics of this book.
0: So think of me and Bob move in, Hamilton assigns himself as their interpreter and he seems to find a lot of self-worth in this role. It seems like this is a good thing for the Hemulin. It's a good thing for Thingamy and Bob. All is well until Thingamy and Bob start acting really, really frightened, and they tell the Hemulin that it's because the Groak is after them.
1: The Groak. The first time the Groak has been mentioned in the Moomin books,
0: it will not be the last. The Moomin household has a big panic about that. They decide to try and barricade themselves in and everybody needs to arm themselves with weapons. Moomin Mama gets an axe for the second time. Moomin Papa gets a gun. Yep. The others have knives and things.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if things had gone differently, the Grok would have had a bad time.
0: So that night, the Groke does show up and they open the door and there she is and they point their weapons at her and she stands there for a bit and then she sidles off into the dark.
1: And everywhere that she has been is frozen.
0: Yeah. We should
1: describe the Groke, right?
0: Should we describe the picture of the Groke?
1: Yeah, why not?
0: This is another really good drawing. It's another
1: good picture. very archetypal.
0: So the Groak looks like she's bigger than an adult Moomin. She's dark, but that could just be that she's in the dark. She's
1: kind of grey, I think.
0: She's got a big wide mouth with lots of teeth, but not smiling. She's not
1: smiling, but she also doesn't necessarily look as evil as as the book and the characters tend to think that she is.
0: And she's got big round emotionless eyes to be honest in the picture she looks kind of startled they're pointing a gun at her which is fair enough
1: yeah i mean i would feel that way if i came to her house (laughs) to pick something up and then discovered people with guns and axes
0: right so you've said she's come to pick something up the reason she's here is she wants Finger and me and bob's suitcase and Finger me and bob are like yeah we took a thing from her and they're like well is it yours or is it hers and they're like no kind of yes kind of no so the next day the snork decides that we need to have a trial to judge Thingame and, and Bob for stealing from the Groke. So they sit in like the bench for the accused <laughs> behind a little tiny barrier in case they should escape. So the accused are Thingamy and, and Bob. The crime is the suitcase theft. The judge is snork, the defence is the Hemmulin, the prosecution is Sniff, and the witness is a snork maiden. Sniff makes the case that Thingamy and Bob have stolen from the Groke and we don't like the Groke, but she's so lonely and they did steal from her. <laughs> Isn't that sad? And he gets so caught up in the emotion of his speech that he starts to, like, sniffle a little bit.
1: We've all been there.
0: <laughs> Hemulin makes a similarly impassioned speech in the other direction and Snork tells them both, you're being too emotional about this, your arguments are emotional, it's not valid. Hemulan says... So the thing is that the suitcase belongs to Thingammy and, and Bob, but the contents of the suitcase belong to the Groke. And everyone's like, what's the contents? And Thing and, Me and Bob are like secret. Yeah. So, okay. And then the Hemulen says, well, the, the, thing and Me and Bob say that the Groke wants the contents because of their monetary value and, thing and Me and Bob want the contents because they're beautiful. So
1: it's very much a kind of like beauty versus capitalism dynamic.
0: Sort of. The way they tell
1: it. We haven't heard from the Groke
0: yet snork is sort of like convinced by this he's like well that's difficult what do you do with good thoughts and bad actions at this point the Groak shows up and snork suggests to her that maybe Thingami and bob could pay her for the contents and she's like how much are you gonna pay me and he's like how about all my gold and she's like no and then moomin mama gets a bit cold goes indoors to put on a shawl because the Groaks made the garden really cold and has the idea Brings out the Hobgoblin's hat and is like, we'll swap you the contents of the suitcase for the Hobgoblin's hat. The Groke's like, what does it do? Moomin Mama takes some of the cherries which Thing and Me Bob have been eating, puts them inside. Everybody crosses their fingers for this to be a good transformation.
1: And very conveniently...
0: Ruby's come out. <laughs> Groke's like, all right then. She takes the hat and off she goes.
1: And at this point, we're told that that's the last time the Groke was seen in the Valley of the Moomins. Which, listeners... We can put to the test as we go on, but I venture to suggest that that is factually incorrect.
0: Then we have another fast forward. It's the end of summer. There's this sort of melancholy feeling in the air. And this is
1: chapter 7, which is the last chapter in its actual like preview of the chapter. It's a very long description
0: of a very long chapter. And then it also says
1: and finally at the end like the description itself is tired by the amount of stuff that's <laughs> in this last chapter.
0: So the first thing that happens is Snufkin's itchy feet get the better of him. He's ready to go, and he goes. To be fair to him, he does do a whistle to ask Moomintroll what his plans are for today. They sit on the bridge like they did at the beginning of the book in spring. Moomintroll says, you ask me about my plans, what are yours? Snufkin goes, I'm leaving. Moomintroll goes, when? Snufkin says, now. And off he goes. And
1: that bit kind of very much reminds me of the end of the house at Pooh Corner, yeah. With the whole Christopher Robin is going thing. And the other thing that this sequence reminds me of, because of the balcony, is Romeo and Juliet, right?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And it, it's definitely a very romantic sort of moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Moomin Troll watches Snuffkin until he's completely out of sight. And then finds that he's crying.
1: Although he says he is not, the picture absolutely proves that he is.
0: Yeah, and also Thingamie and Bob ask him why he's crying. So clearly they can see he's crying. Thingamy and Bob have two solutions to this. One is, would you like to kiss Bob's nose? Would that make you feel better? Moomin' Troll tries it, it doesn't make him feel better. Then they're like, would you like to see... (gasps) the contents <laughs> and he's like yeah definitely so they all crawl under the hedge
1: this is one of the most queer moments of the book without a doubt when two non-binary characters based on lesbian lovers yes show their secret to somebody else who is missing their same-sex partner yeah the moment the Moomin Troll gets inducted into the secret is the moment when Moomin Troll has fully confronted his love. Now you're in the queer club, you can see the queer thing.
0: And the queer thing is the King's Ruby
1: a secret <laughs> ruby inside a bag,
0: underneath a hedge as well.
1: It gives it like a red light that covers yeah. all of them, so they're all bathed in the light of this secret, mysterious thing.
0: yeah so it's the king's ruby it's the size of the black panther's head it's amazing it really does make moomin troll feel a little bit better
1: a bit better but he does think about how he wishes snufkin could have seen it
0: yeah he asks could i see this other times maybe Finger me and bob say nothing <laughs> <laughs> they're not sure
1: find your own ruby
0: Moomintroll crawls out from underneath the hedge. He's a little bit (laughs) dazed. Snort Maiden comes out, sits next to him, he doesn't even notice until she gently prods his tail tuft.
1: Very racy, this book. Sunny,
0: money, keep it, top it, let it down. The big news of the morning, apart from Snufkin has left, is Moomin Mama's bag is missing. Now, we've just seen that Thingamie and and Bob have something of the Snorkmaidens in their little den, one of her woven rush mats. The astute reader might infer that maybe Thingamie and Bob just take stuff.
1: Yeah. The astute reader, <laughs> however, is not what Moomin troll is. Like Moomin Troll's literally seen that evidence. Yeah. And yet Moomin troll <laughs> does not think about that. And this is an interesting moment, and we'll get back to Moomin Mama, I think. But we've seen she's got an affinity for axes. We've seen that she wants peace and she's always sending the children away. When she loses her bag, whoa, anger is mentioned.
0: Snort Maiden says your mother's estate. Moomintroll says, sad or angry? She says sad. He goes, all right, I'll go in then.
1: But anger is mentioned. So we suddenly have the idea that whilst she might be feeling bad and sad this time, there is a bad and angry mood.
0: Yeah, which maybe Moomintroll would not go towards the way he goes toward
1: the sad. When Mama's angry, we don't go and comfort her.
0: So everybody hunts for the handbag. Everybody suggests places she might have left the handbag. She hasn't left the handbag anywhere. They put an advert in the newspaper, Moomin Mama's handbag is missing. Big reward of a greatest August party ever if we find the handbag. me and Bob have an attack of conscience. They're like, oh, she seems really sad without her handbag. Maybe we should give it back. And they're like, yeah, such a shame because we like sleeping in the pockets. <laughs> so they bring it back. Moomin Mama doesn't even care that they stole it.
1: She doesn't even know.
0: Oh, they try to tell her, but she interrupts them and doesn't really understand them. Yeah, She throws them the big, big party. The philosopher comes through with knowing how to throw a party, which is very surprising to everyone. Yeah,
1: this is a w- unusual moment. The muskrat gives good advice. He understands the alchemy of a party very well.
0: Yeah, everybody prepares all day. There's cooking, there's drinks, there's fireworks, there's music. and Then they have a toast to Thingamie and, and Bob. And then the second toast is to Snufkin because they're missing him and then the party's going so well that Thing and, Me and bob decide to treat everyone to a look at the ruby out comes the suitcase again they open it and the ruby beams its red light into space and everybody's completely transfixed and everybody is transported to past memories of happy times and the ruby is so bright that it shines like a beacon all the way to the moon where the Hobgoblin is sitting dejected in a crater looking for his ruby.
1: Another wonderful picture of the Hobgoblin.
0: Yes. But now he's seen the red glow of truth and so he's going to be down in half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile at the party, everyone's still staring and a little rat with red eyes comes out of the plants and a little cat with red eyes also and they try to welcome these new guests and the guests are not up for being welcomed and then the rodent grows up into a big man the hobgoblin everybody's terrified and he's like that's my ruby i've been looking for it for ages can i have it and they're like no we want it fair and square from the grok we paid for it so and he's like well i couldn't possibly steal from you so now i'm just going to be really depressed and can i have something to eat So they give him some pancakes and then everybody's a bit less scared of him because he eats the pancakes.
1: Anybody who eats pancakes and jam can't be so awfully dangerous. And it mentions explicitly in the text that it's a new hat.
0: Yeah, he's got a new one.
1: The grok still has his hat. He has a new hat.
0: It's all right. There's enough hats for everyone. The
1: hat was never an issue. It was all about (laughs) the ruby all along.
0: The Hobgoblin sort of warms to the party, even though he does explicitly say he only cares about the ruby. And he decides to give everybody a wish, because the Hobgoblin has two powers. He can transform himself into anything, and he can grant anybody's wish.
1: Apart from his own.
0: Yes. So everybody gets a wish. The best wish is from Thingamy and Bob. They're like, we've got a good idea. Make another king's ruby. Like, just exactly the same. And then you can have one and we can have one. And he's like so happy. He makes another ruby with a swirl of his cape, takes it away with him. Everybody lives happily ever after. So what I thought we'd do first is there are two moments in this half book one at the beginning and one at the end where people get presents is I thought we would compare what people found at the beach to what they asked for from the hobgoblin at the end. The hemulin on the beach finds a shell orchid. When he gets a wish from the hobgoblin, who's sort of in his capacity as Santa here, yeah. he asks for a spade. It's for his botanical use. Sniff gets a life belt, slightly mouldy, but... Definitely still works.
1: Sniff gets a life-changing life belt. Like it's gonna absolutely transform his life. But then Moomin troll has found this boy, the the kind that goes in the water, not not the
0: one might fall in love with.
1: Yeah, the one okay. <laughs> the one that blue-haired people fall in love with. And Sniff tries to kind of do swapsies, and Moomin troll tries to get the life belt. Which I actually think is a really out of order decision. It is. He knows what that can do for Sniff. He also knows that Sniff is liable to want things that he hasn't got. (laughs) He doesn't say, well, what would be best for you, Sniff, is to keep your life belt.
0: He's totally pulling elder sibling privilege here.
1: Out of order, out of order. (laughs) But Sniff sensibly does decide to prioritise himself, his own needs. He lives his best life. And keeps his life belt.
0: And then when the hobgoblin says, what would you like, little boy? Sniff goes, a boat. And then he's like, did it not happen? And the hobgoblin's like, no, no, yeah, but I put it on the beach for you. Like, obviously I knew you wouldn't want it here.
1: And those two things go very well together, yeah. a life belt and a boat.
0: Troll found the boy and a snow globe.
1: Which troll quite delightfully believes to be a really rare thing. I know. <laughs>
0: And when Moomin Troll is asked by the Hobgoblin what he wants, Moomin Troll makes a wish for somebody else. He wishes that the party table with all the food and drink and flowers fly away to wherever Snufkin is now.
1: And that's a really beautiful moment because it kind of acknowledges the equal happiness of the introvert and the extrovert. Yeah. That also comes out in Moomin troll's speech about Snufkin, that Snufkin is happy on his own, Far away And so yeah. rather than ask for Snufkin to be back Moomin Troll asks for him to get the good things about the party That he would enjoy But still be able to keep his his loneliness that he wants
0: So the other wish that ties into this is Moomin Mama's wish So on the beach, Moomin Mama finds a nap Moomin Mama in this book is about rest and peace Yep, And she sends everybody else out to find stuff And she finds a really nice spot of nice sand that's warm and curls up and has a nap. And then when Moomin Mama is asked by the Hobgoblin what she would like, what she wants is for Moomin Troll's sadness and missing of Snufkin to be lifted.
1: And that... Is so beautiful to me. Listeners, remember last episode I was talking about the kind of representation of non-monogamy. And I feel like for me, this really hit in a sense of like the the ideal for non-monogamy is to be able to feel not sad about somebody going off and having a fun time somewhere else.
0: It says that the sadness flies from his heart and that all that is left is a happy expectation of when Snufkin will come back in the spring
1: expectation looking forward to that person returning rather than being jealous or envious of their relationship in this particular case Snufkin's relationship is with himself and the world but i still think it kind of folds out in in multiple ways
0: and papa found loads of useful bits that he was going to build stuff out of
1: When somebody asks him if they can help him to drag stuff out, he's like, no way, this is mine. The part of the joy is dragging the thing out myself. No one else can help me. I find my sea crops on my own and no one else is allowed to be involved.
0: He has a really great time with the beachcombing. But then when he's asked what he wants, he's got this real conflict because he's like, but everything I want, I'd rather build myself, to be honest. It's like the Hemulen and his collection. The completing of the collection is not the fun bit. It's for getting it together. So he doesn't know what to ask for. Mama suggests some beautiful bindings for his memoir. And he goes, all right, then.
1: Heavily underlining the fact that he may be getting towards the point where he might share these memoirs with other people. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot.
0: Dot, dot, dot. Then we have the most disturbing wish... From Ugh. the snork maiden, so the snork maiden, as I said, found the wooden queen on the island and had a very conflicted relationship with her where she loved her, she found her so beautiful, she wanted to make a gift of her to Moomin troll. But then when Moomin Troll loved her, she found herself really jealous, and even though now her fringe has grown back in and it's curly, though the hair is back, the confidence is not. She's still fatally knocked by that, it seems, and so she whispers in the hobgoblin's ear that she wants something, and the hobgoblin's like, are you sure? And she's like, totally. And so a swish of his cloak, and she has the painted wooden eyes of the figurehead on her own face. It's awful.
1: Terrifying (laughs) idea. Like, imagine if your eyes were suddenly horrifically wooden and painted.
0: Very horror.
1: Reverse Pinocchio kind of thing going on.
0: It's horrible, and everybody immediately all agrees it's horrible. Nobody's into it including her. But then the Hobgoblin decides this point to be really finicky about not allowing more than one wish for each person.
1: Which he breaks later.
0: But in this moment, he's like, one person one wish, your brother can wish the eyes away for you. And he's like, but I had my own thing I wanted to wish for.
1: I mean, I think he's trying to teach them lessons. Yeah. But I do not dig it. (laughs) <laughs> I don't love it either
0: So Snork talks about some of the things he wanted Hobgoblin goes, oh, that's too complicated he's like, fine, just give my sister her eyes back then <laughs> Snorkmaiden gets her eyes back Her nice little eyes, but with slightly longer eyelashes <sighs> Snuffkin didn't find anything on the beach
1: He preferred his pockets to anything that he could find
0: And Snufkin didn't talk to the Hobgoblin
1: He does get something from the Hobgoblin He gets a whole table I mean, it's a great moment for Snufkin. We don't see it in the book, but I like to imagine it. In that moment, he's just going to be like, yeah, yeah, that happens sometimes.
0: Oh, <laughs> he's not going to question this it. This is
1: one of the reasons I like walking on my own.
0: From there, shall we go on to this whole <sighs> beauty politics snork yeah. Maiden arc?
1: Let's talk about the snork Maiden.
0: <laughs> to summarise what happens, she loses her hair. She tries to define herself by giving Moomin Troll an amazing gift, but just becomes jealous of it. Her hair comes back, the insecurity remains, she wishes for eyes like the Wooden Queen, it's hideous, and then she's saved by her brother, the end.
1: In the middle of that, she also is responsible for snaring the fish that nobody else can snare, and she definitely feels very pleased with herself for that achievement.
0: Yes. So, the Snort Maiden has many other things going for her, besides her hair. One of them being, she's very ingenious, but it seems like the most important way that she defines herself is by being attractive.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a complicated thing about this particular text, isn't it? Yeah. When I was a kid, I liked Finn Family Moomin Troll as much as I liked Comet in Moominland. But as an adult, I detest a lot of things about the way that the Snort Maiden is handled in Finn Family Moomin Troll.
0: Do we think Tove likes the Snork Maiden? In this book, I think not.
1: I don't know. There's definitely a story that is trying to be told about vanity. Vanity being often very problematic and judgmental, and who gets to decide who is vain, and why is it always women who are vain? Yeah. Or if they're a man who's vain, then they're being unmanly. So it's all mixed up with bad attitudes about gender. And yeah, this is the book that betrays the Snork Maiden. I can't think of this as a flaw in the Snort Maiden. I can only think of this as a flaw in the book.
0: To be fair, if your hair got burned off, you would be upset. Yeah. it's not an unreasonable thing to be upset about.
1: Exactly. That's not vanity, to be upset that your hair is gone.
0: But that's sort of played for laughs throughout. So on the beach, she puts something called sea lilies on her head instead of her hair. Do you know what a sea lily is?
1: No, I don't.
0: It's not a flower. It's an animal related to the starfish.
1: Okay, yeah, I think that makes sense from the pictures, actually, yeah.
0: They're anchored to the sea floor. They can't really move. Then they've got these, like, wavy, frondy bits, which you can rip off without killing them. It's a weird thing to put on your head though And I feel like it's played as a joke
1: And also her like Her jealousy of the figurehead Is also super complicatedly done Like obviously part of that is Woman on woman desire Yeah Obviously Tuve was a woman who fancied women Mm Mm-hmm We can all relate to that complex feeling. I have that complex feeling about very attractive people who I might like to look like, who I kind of like desire, but also resent. Yeah, We can all understand that. That's not a problem to dramatise that feeling within a children's book.
0: It's just that this whole book mocks her. Yeah, it's
1: how you do it. And it's also like, why does the snork have to solve her problem for her at the end?
0: Yeah. It feels like she's being punished for wanting to be pretty.
1: In previous books it would have been the snort maiden who saved the day with the groke in that yeah. court case. But it wasn't. And it felt like almost the snort maiden didn't get to do that because of the fact she had done this other stuff that was already being critiqued. No offence to Tuve. I like Tuve. Obviously, she's written some of my favourite books. But you could absolutely say that something that's going on here, a phrase that we might use these days, might be internalised misogyny.
0: Yeah, that's how it feels to me. So that thread in the book marred your experience of it, marred mine as well. I had been really enjoying this up until that happened.
1: Yeah, that's right. And like Nina had been like, when the, she'd read the first half of the book, she was like, oh, this one's really good. Yeah. I like it more than Comet and Moonland*." And I was and like,
0: I'm like mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Snort Maiden in general in this book is really badly dealt with. Like, I feel like it's like justice for the Snort Maiden is how I would like to think about this book. This isn't canon for me. The way that the, the Snort Maiden is dealt with in this book isn't canon. I'm not... A fan of that And if we also add in You might not feel That there are loose ends That aren't correctly tied up But you also don't like The Tarzan stuff, right?
0: So let's talk about The literary (laughs) references In this book There's the Moby Dick moment They're getting pulled along By the line It's more like hunting Than fishing, really Yeah It's more brutal And it seems a bit more senseless Because they don't need to eat That big of a fish
1: Right Just like Moby Dick is quite yeah. senseless, and uh, they don't need to eat that big a fish either. No. Although I think Moby Dick has more going for it than the second half of this book.
0: There's that, then there's the Tarzan stuff. And I kind of, I get it. Like, you've got a house full of Lianas that you can hang off. Like, I sort of see why that idea is fun.
1: Kids would have been playing Tarzan and Jane the same way that they would have also been playing cowboys and Native Americans. Yeah. But... That said, the reasons why they were playing those games were bad ones. They were colonialism and violence, getting changed into children's stories and sold back to them for money.
0: Tarzan is a very colonialist story.
1: The worst thing about that sequence is the teeth. The snork has... Teeth made out of orange peel And it even says ask your mama So the mama has to be complicit in helping kids to be racist The snork is playing the enemy
0: The enemy in the Tarzan books I looked it up is local African black people.
1: Exactly what I thought it would be. We have to remember that Finland, I was reading some data on this earlier on, it's considered by statisticians to be the most overtly racist country in Europe. So you have to keep that in mind. Like, whilst she may have been doing some stuff in this book that was undercutting some colonial narratives, and whilst she may have been staunchly anti-fascist, she was brought up in a country that was racist. Her father was anti-Semitic, which she disagreed with him about and they had a lot of conflict about. Yeah. You know, there were still in her home growing up, adults with racist views. Yeah, that was the bit that really was the worst for me. Yeah. Was the snork with the teeth.
0: There's a drawing of it as well. It's really awful.
1: There are many racist connotations between fruit, smiles. Yeah we're two white people talking about colonialism on a podcast that is about some books written by a white person so it's all complicated and we're not necessarily the best people to articulate all the nuances here but white people do need to do this
0: and i think it would be hypocritical of us to read and love on these books and not talk about this
1: absolutely and you know this is our history this is what has created modern whiteness
0: it's quite sci-fi this isn't it like that picture of him sitting on the moon <laughs>
1: yeah
0: no, <laughs> Pretty it is. Cool.
1: and that stuff i like like i yeah. like the hobgoblin stuff i like most of the wishes if not the terrible one and i love Thingamy and bob and the secret ruby and the court case
0: let's talk about the court case it reminded me of the very officious meetings that the snork was calling in the last book It's sort of all about the pomp and ceremony and not at all about the practicality of solving the problem. Right. He's got his little wig. Is he depicted with a gavel?
1: I think he does have a gavel.
0: He sits behind a box.
1: Those two meetings moments are... Satire,
0: Men having meetings about things and not getting anything done. <laughs> she went
1: to a lot of those meetings in her life. Like she wrote for anti-fascist publications. She was in the arts world.
0: Definitely been in a room with a bunch of anarchists arguing with each other about the definition of anarchy. She's been in a lot of situations
1: where men have been...
0: Windbagging along.
1: And therefore those are very good sections.
0: They're really fun. me and Bob are undercutting it as well and that they don't really understand what's going on. And they don't really care And they're blowing the stones of their cherries at the judge
1: Absolutely, like that's <laughs> what I mean Like Snufkin leaves But with Thingamy and Bob We've still got a sort of Snufkin ideology coming in
0: It's sort of a game as well, right? They're playing at court So some people are getting quite into their role Sniff is really into his role And the Hemulan is still being an excellent Hemulan But really... They've not sorted anything out. What's happened by the time the Groke shows up is Snork has told everyone (laughs) off for having the wrong kind of feelings.
1: I think that's quite accurate to court (laughs) cases, you know, like they don't do anything and the judge just tells everybody off for having the wrong kind of feelings.
0: (laughs) And then it's sort of all about legal ownership. It seems like Thing and and Bob have stolen the ruby from the Groke.
1: One of the things the Groke is meant to represent is death. But I feel like in this book, she mostly represents capitalism. But in a way, capitalism is the death of humanity, maybe. We'll see how it goes, how it pans out.
0: (laughs) So this theft would be resolved as a crime if Thingamie and Bob pay the Groke an amount that she consents to but is that what you want to do when you take someone's possessions oh it's all right I'll just like give you enough money for it that still seems quite coercive to me it's how
1: the criminal justice system often works though isn't it we never give reparations to the people who need reparations but in many court cases money is the solution
0: but that doesn't work either so it's really Moomin Mama who is not playing any part in the court case who comes up with a good solution and she wanted to get rid of that hat anyway right Two birds, one stone, Moomin Mama.
1: Two birds, one stone.
0: (laughs) Shall we also talk about Moomin Mama and Moomin Papa?
1: This is an interesting book for the Moomin parents. We get to know a a little bit more of Moomin Papa. Mm -hmm. He's more present. In this book, we get a sense of both of them. Mm -hmm. And we get a sense of what it's like for them both trying to live with this gaggle of children that they welcome into their house all the time, but then it doesn't give them any peace. And both of them want peace and both of them are in different ways shown as wanting peace. Yeah. One of the things I did before this episode was listen to a podcast by Queer as Fact about the history of Tuve Janssen and it had a lot about the people who inspired these two characters of Moomin Mama and Moomin Papa. Although Tuve only is down as saying that Moomin Mama was based on her mum but isn't down as saying that Moomin Papa was based on her papa.
0: yeah. She had a much more complicated relationship with her father than she had with her mother.
1: Which could explain why, you know, for the first book he was absent yeah. and why maybe she chose of the two of the parents to give memoirs to and try to work out and explain it was the one she felt less close yeah. to. I can understand that. Yeah,
0: no, me too. And
1: so Moomin Mama was based on Tuve's mum, who Tuve referred to as Ham. That was her nickname for her mum. Ham is quite interesting when you think about Moomin Mama, though, because whilst we only really know Moomin Mama as a mother... Ham was an artist. She was an artist. She was a suffragette. She was somebody who established a finished version of the Girl Guides off her own bat without the help of the wider Girl Guide system. And so there's a lot more to her as a person with a life
0: Which Moomin Mama is not afforded in these books at all. Not
1: really. Not yet, at least. And we should definitely look out for any suggestions of the pre-family Moomin Mama. We're going to get potentially a lot of pre-family Moomin Papa. And we'll see how that pans out. So
0: Moomin Papa is accorded like creative will in these books already. He's been talking about his memoir for ages. And Tuva's father was a sculptor. And I wonder if that was how it was in her household as well. She's got two artist parents. Yeah. And by all accounts, her mother was quite a successful artist. I mean, definitely she was selling her work.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, this is one of the reasons I kind of identify with Tuve's background, is that I was brought up by a writer and an artist. And I had a dad that would be off writing and I wouldn't be allowed in the room. (laughs) Which is perfectly reasonable and I should say that at the same time as my dad was in that room and wouldn't let me in, he was also the main caregiver.
0: My dad is a sculptor.
1: Right, literally a sculptor.
0: And my dad also carries those feelings of it was hard for him growing up and it's hard for him now and nobody understands him and everybody should be made to be sorry. So then we've got another bit with Mum and Papa later on. So everybody's getting ready for the party. Papa's getting the drinks ready. And is just sampling them all afternoon, such that when it comes time to give a speech, he starts quite strong, but then he goes rambling off into stories about his youth.
1: He starts telling his memoirs, right?
0: Which is what my dad did every night. In a way, reading Moomin Papa makes me kind of sad because he is a better version of what my dad was able to do with those proclivities. For all that, I'm going to rag a bit on Moomin Papa, like. He is also writing his memoirs and he is also still being a parent to his children, which are two things that my dad didn't manage to do. Like, my dad felt creatively stifled by having a big, rowdy, loud family with lots of children. I've got a lot of
1: affection for Moomin Papa, partly mm. because my own papa read me the stories but also my own papa did do that stuff like when we lived in our weird childhood home which was a kind of cottage in north wales he built a weird bunk bed kind of set up you know like everything (laughs) was very moomin papa like yeah repurposed stuff i had a desk that was made of a door so it was massive that my dad made for me. There is something of the finding things in the sea and then making things <laughs> from them that you can see within my dad. So there is all of that within this couple. I mean, one of the things I wanted to say based on the the podcast I listened to was that it's fascinating to me that Tuve was a person she didn't want to marry, partly because she didn't want to have the dynamics that she saw in her own parents' home. She literally said that she didn't want to have kids because of the fact that wars were happening and she didn't know what the world would be like for those kids. And also because of the way that if you have kids as a woman, it completely messes up your life in a way that it often doesn't for men. But she was the mother of the Moomins, right? And therefore, by extension, she was the real Moomin mama. Like yeah. that's a kind of interesting thing that I thought up. I thought, oh, I have to say that on the podcast.
0: No oh, good one, <laughs> but it's.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's really kind of deeply ironic and strange that she created this iconic heterosexual marriage parental role duo.
0: It is really interesting.
1: She celebrates that ideal in these books. She doesn't critique it. Unlike the way that the snort maiden is treated in this book There's no viciousness for Moomin Mama or Moomin Papa
0: No And I I feel they deserve it more, to be honest Yes, absolutely (laughs) Shall we do our natural history corner? The poisonous pink perennial, I couldn't narrow it down
1: No, nor could I
0: I wonder if it's a foxglove, but I don't know and then the cherries. So what happens with the cherries is that Thingamie and Bob are eating them during the trial, throwing them at the judge, and then they are turned by the hobgoblin's hat into rubies. Cherries represent in Christianity, which I'm going to assume is 2 background. Good fortune and celestial wealth. Well, celestial wealth I thought was very interesting, given that at this moment the hobgoblin is up in the celestial heavens searching for his wealth. Maybe that's why the cherries get turned into rubies.
1: And in terms of one of the themes that we've been looking at this through, in terms of alchemy, the most clear-cut alchemical moment is when the lightning changes the rock to gold. Yeah. That is... One of the good strands of the politics of the book Money, wealth, rubies and gold Are generally looked at as kind of not as important
0: Yeah, there's a great bit with the gold isn't there Where Moomin Mama says Oh we'll use the big bits around the borders of the flower beds But we won't use the little bits They look too rubbishy
1: (laughs) Gold is there to decorate your flower beds But the flowers are much more important And so there is a kind of anti-capitalist And that's consistent throughout the book With the grok, with the hobgoblin
0: So I think the hobgoblin is kind of an interesting counterpoint to the Hemulin, because the Hobgoblin is not able to pivot his special interest onto something else. He specifically says, I can't care about anything that's not the ruby.
1: And unlike the Hemulin, he's content when he gets the Queen's ruby. Yes. Although I don't see why an exact copy of the King's ruby would become the Queen's ruby, I don't think everything in pairs has to be gendered in this kind of way.
0: Whatever, he gets a big ruby, it does actually make him happy. But the Hobgoblin isn't human-like in the way that the hemulin is and the hobgoblin doesn't really have to continue being a person once his story is complete whereas the hemulin needs to be able to pivot from stamps to botany and he can
1: so it uses the word rary in this book and i looked it up and it doesn't it's not a word it means something that is rare-y, like something that is fuzzy. It's not a word that catched on. And so it was kind of interesting to me. I like it. It's a good word. I'm surprised that it was used, though, by a translator.
0: But maybe them made up a word.
1: Right. Did Tuve make up a word that the translator
0: then... Had to make up a word for as well. Or did the translator make up this word? In which case, good for you, Elizabeth Porch.
1: As a lover of made-up words, I wanted to point it out. So this isn't a Nina's mistake because you didn't find it. No. I think it's a bit of a mistake for the hobgoblin to turn up when he's supposed to be on the moon. The hobgoblin's hat felt like it was a continuity error until the book tried to save itself and say, he's got a new hat now. That's very convenient. He's got a new hat that does the same thing as the other hat did. Has he got infinite hats? Can he just keep on losing a hat?
0: I mean, he's got infinite amounts of rubies. He can afford to go to a good hat maker. I
1: like the idea of him accidentally dropping this mayhem all over the world and lots of different (laughs) small creatures having different adventures with the hats. But the other thing that I thought was a bit of a mistake is that in the fishing section, the snork takes out his pocket knife And it is exactly the same as the one that Moomin Troll had.
0: Yeah. Now, I
1: don't know (laughs) if that's like Two vase Forgotten, which of the characters had that. I think that is what it is. (laughs) Or if it's trying to say that everyone has the same pocket knife.
0: It could be a mark that the snork has been fully accepted into the Moomin family by being given this sort of rite of passage type present in the same way the Moomin Troll was. I just wanted to
1: flag that up. I've been more stringent in my looking for continuity errors in this read. But I also think that was probably influenced by the fact that I dislike this book. (laughs) I've got less grace to extend to this book. (laughs) So Nina, you spotted some bums in this book
0: on the full-page illustration of the party right at the end of the book. So in the foreground, you've got the party table and most of our main characters and some other people who showed up to the party. And then in Little Pockets in the Darkness, there are like mini parties of smaller creatures. One of those parties features some tree sprites and one of those tree sprites has her back to us and obviously she's not wearing any clothes because she's a tree sprite
1: it's not so much that tree sprites like to get their bums out and more that their bums are always out
0: yeah so there are bum cheeks here
1: So every week on this show, we like to talk about a problem that somebody might have and consider what would Snufkin do.
0: And this week we've got a question from a young person called Jane. I, 19F, just discovered that my fiancé, 40M, actually already has a wife, 39F, who he keeps hidden in the attic due to her unstable and frankly violent character. We are unable to marry, as this would constitute bigamy. He says that he loves me and wants me to stay with him in sin. I love him too. What would Snuffkin do? We've done that slightly in the frame of
1: am I the wretched wretch questions and this kind of modern thing of putting ages by people's names. But I think those ages are particularly illuminating for this problem. Yes, And I mean, we should say for people who have not got the reference. This
0: is a central conflict in Jane Eyre.
1: Jane Eyre a book that people
0: like I quite like it I don't (laughs) but
1: that said the problem that Snufkin has to answer here we touched on this in the last episode but Snufkin doesn't do relationships much
0: Snufkin doesn't do monogamy
1: definitely doesn't do monogamy
0: (laughs) that would be the first element of this question that Would puzzle him
1: Bigamy wouldn't be an issue And also the idea of living in sin Wouldn't be a particular issue for Snufkin either If you want to live with someone Live with them
0: But the idea that you had to find out For yourself That there is another wife in the attic Is maybe a problem In terms of Truthfulness in relationships Snufkin knows about the Snorkmaiden
1: And I I also think that Snufkin Would not really approve of anyone being locked in a prison-like setup, for he is against prisons. I mean, let's face it, Rochester is not a good dude.
0: No, he's not.
1: And I mean, I've only seen this as a play and read about the plot in lots of different places, and I know he's not a good dude.
0: Rochester is not a good dude. However, he is both ugly and hot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pro-good ugly representation, I guess. But then if someone is desirable, are they in fact not ugly?
0: He's considered ugly by society's standards and Jane is completely besotted with him and teases him for being ugly and they're both kind of into that dynamic.
1: Yeah, you could get problematic but relatable power dynamics by watching Disney's Beauty and the Beast though instead and uh, that would be better.
0: Okay. (laughs) Snufkin doesn't understand the monogamy part or the locking up of the wife part
1: i don't think that the age difference would upset snufkin as much as it upsets us
0: there's several other layers of power differential between jane and rochester he's her employer he's landed gentry and she is a poor orphan with no sort of economic power of her own
1: We're not just doing age gap discourse, we are also looking at the power dynamic in this relationship as being solidly bad, age being one of the factors.
0: Yeah, but one of the good things about Jane Eyre is the way that Jane's own desire is depicted and her sexuality and, you know, her lust. I think those are good reasons to stay with Rochester, is that she wants to.
1: But does staying with Rochester involve her, like, ignoring the fact that he's locked a woman in his attic and made her go mad?
0: So she doesn't think that he made her go mad.
1: Right. Maybe someone should lend her this book called The White Sargasso Sea. That might clarify (laughs) things for her a bit. Yeah. Look Um, at that. I haven't read the book. You don't have to read things. You can just read about them and look like you're knowledgeable. It's a very uh, muskrat behaviour.
0: It is very muskrat behaviour of you. I think Snufkin would say, follow your heart, right?
1: I think he would say, don't get in relationships with park keepers, police officers, prison guards and that dude. Because he is kind of all of those things in one. Yeah.
0: I think (laughs) Snufkin's anti-carceral politics are maybe stronger than Snufkin's follow your heart politics. And so probably the prospect of maybe being locked in an attic, Snufkin would say pack up thy tent and go wandering on the moors, which is what she does do. Shall we do Spirit of the Moomins? What's yours?
1: For my Spirit of the Moomins this week... I have chosen She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, the most recent cartoon series version of She-Ra. I have chosen this for lots of reasons. One, it does not mistreat women within the narrative. Being pretty is not looked on as vanity. It's full of canon queerness. Like it doesn't just imply queerness. There's multiple kinds of queerness going on. And it's just a great adventure. If you like Avatar The Last Airbender, then you might like this cartoon. It has lots of magic in it, like this book. It has things that change into other things, very much like the Groke or the Hobgoblin. The creatures that are initially bad guys will be humanized and seen in different ways. It's great for people of any age, but probably. Six Onwards Have
0: you seen it? No Of course not You should see it It's good I believe you When people recommend Television shows to me I 100% believe you That it's good But I'm also 100% not going to watch it
1: So Nina What is your spirit Of the Moomins this week? I bet it's not Something to watch
0: It's something to read The Jumbies By Tracy Baptiste And it's A spooky story Set on an island There's grappling With the idea of death There's shape-shifting. It seems like it's set on an island similar to Trinidad or Tobago but it doesn't specify. So it's lots of black people, lots of Indian people. There's some good fruit representation which isn't racist. There's some really nice bits about growing oranges. There's some cool bits about storms happening out at sea and how dangerous that is. There's also some playing with the... Sleeping Beauty, House Full of Thorns thing, which is what made me think of it. It's much darker than the Moomins, but it's sort of magical island adventure.
1: I feel like even our spirit of the Moomins this week, both of them have been slightly critiques of the particular Moomins book that we've looked at. We're like, let's recommend much better things. Yeah. But for better or worse, this is the book people think of when they think of the Moomins. Whereas, I mean, I think Comet and Moominland is a much better book. I even think The Flood is the better book.
0: Yeah, it's not the best one we've done, is it? It is not. I did still quite enjoy it.
1: It's it's weird to dislike the book so much, but then feel really seen in that kind of non-monogamy moment. Mm. Within the book, I dislike the most.
0: Yeah, it's never so clear cut as like the thing with the most problematic bit in it also has nothing good going for it you know it's always that way
1: exactly it's, it's very common within life to have that kind of contradiction and speaking of which what is your spirit of the pod goblins hat this week nina
0: my spirit of the pod goblins hat is a jane Eyre reread podcast it's called on air good name The conceit is that one of the presenters, Vanessa Zoltan's favourite book is Jane Eyre. It was her mum's favourite book and they've been passing down this book in this family at the age of 13 to girls. And she's got a stepdaughter coming up to her 13th birthday. And the question is, is this book good enough to give to modern 13 year olds? Or has it got more bad than good in it?
1: interesting
0: and so they read through the whole thing chapter by chapter and they had a very good conversation better than the one we just had about jane's choice in that moment talking about like the ways that marriage imprisoned everyone who was married at the time that divorce was practically impossible that being a single woman financially was practically impossible that having a child out of wedlock was really dangerous it wasn't just a thing you could do and be okay they're very good discussions of jane eyre That podcast is the reason I read it and liked it. I would not have tried to read Jane Eyre or probably liked it had I not had those conversations and that context for the book.
1: Can I just listen to the podcast and say I've read it?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. (laughs) You you could do that too because they do summarise each chapter like we do here. So you can just do that.
1: So that's all for episode six, and this is the last episode of our first season. We'll be back at some undetermined time in the future. It won't be too long, but it will be a break. But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for the next season of The Podgoblin's Hat.
0: What happens when a book is written from the point of view of a moomin?
1: What's the difference between exploits and memoirs?
0: And if you experience so many environmental catastrophes that they start repeating themselves, is that a you problem rather than a world problem? Until next
1: time, do your best to understand any foreigner that arrives at your door seeking safety, even if you can't understand what they're saying, and even if you think they're a mouse.
0: See you next season. Bye! Bye!